Well, I invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to Psalm 15. And I want to bring a message this morning entitled, A Crucial Question. We're going to be looking at the whole of this psalm, which is only five verses. So I want to begin by reading this psalm. Again, a psalm of David. He says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Well, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word will endure forever. And I pray this morning for your people that you would clear our minds and hearts, Lord, that we might be attentive to what you have to speak to us through your word, Lord, and that it might, again, change our hearts and minds that we might draw closer to you. And we thank you, Lord, that your love for us indeed is unconditional. And Lord, that we look forward to that day when we dwell with you forever. And we thank you for that in Christ's name, amen. Well, as most of you know, Gail and I recently took a sabbatical, which I very much appreciated. During my sabbatical, Gail and I visited several other churches. Now, I do this for two reasons. First, I don't get out much. So I like to try to see what's out there. But I, I want to get kind of a pulse on what different worship services are like and just uh, see some of the other people in different churches. And let me state up front that there are some good, solid, Bible-believing churches out there. But suffice it to say that I was glad to get back to Lakeside. Now, as I sat through some of these worship services, I thought of a question that I believe would trouble many people in a lot of congregations. And it's not just a question, beloved, it's actually a very crucial question. And it's a crucial question because it's a question that is literally put to God by David. And the question is this, what does the Lord require of us? Some people would say, does the Lord really require anything of us? I mean, I don't think the Lord really requires anything of us at all. And unfortunately, there would be many believers who would find a question like this to be very offensive. And I say that because in the laid-back, latte-sipping ambience of many contemporary churches, the notion that God might actually demand something of us is as foreign as forelocks and phylacteries. Does the Lord really require anything of us? The God of the 21st century asks only that we show up, right? Come as you are, no questions asked, no requirements, just come on in. Now to be fair, there are many churches who have put up many legalistic obstacles, many man-made barriers, which has legitimately obstructed the pure worship of God. But I would say this, beloved, far too often churches have sought to rid themselves of any preparation, any requirements, any reverential conduct in worship. In fact, there is a casualness in much of the church today, a lack of attentiveness in how we approach God. We've forgotten many of the things that I think are required of us, and we fail to prepare ourselves as an audience before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
In Psalm 15, we're going to see that there is a right and proper way for us to approach God. And we're going to see that in salvation, we may truly come as we are, but in sanctification, God does not expect us to stay there. Amen? In asking the question, what does the Lord require of us, our focus is not on who may enter the kingdom of heaven, but who will enter the kingdom of heaven and be warmly received by God. We're going to see that the spiritual conditions of our lives really matters as we approach God. That the words of our lips must match the integrity of our lives. So this psalm literally focuses on how we must live if we are to enjoy fellowship with God. It is not on how to be saved or gain access to God. And this psalm then, standing on the shoulders of justification, is riveted on sanctification. Our preparedness in standing before the Lord. We are saved by grace through faith, but that in our Christian walk is only the beginning, not the end. It matters to God how we conduct ourselves before him. God, we're told, demands of us purity of heart, a walk of personal holiness before him. And as believers, we should understand that the free gift of salvation is not untethered to moral responsibility or spiritual obligation. Rather, beloved, the freeness of God's grace should motivate us to walk in a manner that is worthy before the Lord. So as we look at this psalm, really the outline of these five verses is pretty straightforward. In verse 1, David asks that crucial question. In verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5, he gives us a very careful answer. And then at the end of verse 5, he ends with a very comforting promise. And in all of this, I want us to see what qualifies us to dwell and abide with God forever. And we're going to see that without the righteousness in and through Christ that we have, none of us would be fit to dwell in God's presence. None of us would be qualified to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So let's begin in verse 1 where David asks the crucial question. Notice he says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Now you might notice from our earlier reading of Scripture that Psalm 15 bears a very striking resemblance to Psalm 24. And there is little doubt historically that these Psalms are connected with the removal of the Ark of the Covenant to the holy hill of Zion. In fact, the tent of verse 1 refers to the tabernacle. And you'll remember that the portable dwelling place of God was the tabernacle as the Israelites wandered through the wilderness. They brought the tabernacle with them. The holy hill is a reference to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So David asks, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? The same question that David asks again in Psalm 24, 3. So where are we historically? Well, the ark is now in the tabernacle that David had pitched on Mount Zion. Now, why is this important for us to to chew on for a minute? Because David knew the seriousness of approaching God. David understood the seriousness of worshiping God and coming into his presence. This was no small matter. This was no casual undertaking whatsoever. And I want to give you a little history of how the ark got to where it was in Jerusalem so you get a sense of the weightiness of what we're reading here. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, we read that the ark at one time was captured by the Philistines. 
And we're told that they brought the Ark of the Covenant to the house of Dagon, and Dagon was one of their many false gods. He was a Philistine god. And when they put the Ark of the Covenant there, the Philistines went in the next day, and this idol was fallen down flat on its face. Now, you would think there might be a clue there. So they put him back up. They went in again the next day, and not only had this idol fallen down, but the head and the hands of this idol were chopped off. Another clue. Then we're told that God afflicted the Philistines with tumors, and guess what? They wanted to get rid of the ark. So they brought the ark to the city of Gath, and God afflicted the people in the city of Gath with all kinds of tumors. There were many who died, and panic set throughout the city. And finally, the Philistines said, you know what? We got to get this out of our culture altogether. So after seven months of having the ark, the Philistines brought it back, and the ark came to a place called Beth Shemesh, and we're told in Scripture that over 50,070 men were slaughtered because they looked at the ark irreverently. Did you get that? We see that in 1 Samuel 6.19. And then the men of the city in 1 Samuel 6.20 said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I get that, don't you? If you were back then, you would have been asking the same question. I mean, this is impossible. Then the ark was left in the home of a man named Abinadab. And years later, we're told that David commissioned two brothers, Uzzah, and Ahio to move the ark to its final home in Jerusalem. We read about that in 2 Samuel 6.3. So what did they do? These two brothers loaded the ark onto a cart, and at one point, the oxen pulling the cart with the ark of the covenant stumbled, and Uzzah, we're told, reached out his hand to hold the ark from falling on the ground. And then we're told that God's anger was kindled, and he struck Uzzah dead right on the spot. And we're told that even David was afraid at this point. It's like, now on the surface, it seems like Uzzah was doing a good thing, doesn't it? I mean, we might think that. But remember, the Ark of the Covenant, beloved, was a holy vessel. And the scriptures were very clear that God said this was not to be transported on a cart, but it was to be transported on foot. And there were stays or poles that would be inserted through the loops of the ark, making sure that no human hands ever touched the ark. But in his effort to keep the ark from being desecrated by mud, Uzzah assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. And that cost him his life. The ark was then brought, we're told, to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and it stayed there for three months. And then... Finally, David brought the ark to the tabernacle on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So that's a flyby of how the ark got to Jerusalem. Now, I hope, beloved, with this limited background, you can see why this question in verse 1 is so critical. It is no small matter to be in the presence of God. Amen? It is a serious issue. We read over and over again that no man could look upon God and live. To dwell in God's presence demands a high degree of attentiveness and reverence. And I think the question that David asks in verse 1 has both immediate and future implications. In David's time, he wisely asked in 2 Samuel 6, 9, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words, I would be fearful to think that the ark was coming to me. 
He knew the seriousness of being in the presence of God, of what the ark represented. And David's thinking was this, if God is holy, which he is, and man is sinful, which he is, how can there be ongoing fellowship between the two? How in the world can man simply abide with God? In the Hebrew, to abide literally means to sojourn. It means to inhabit. The idea here is it means to permanently remain with something. In the same way, David asks, who might dwell on God's holy hill? And in the Hebrew, this carries the idea of settling down or abiding or residing. And both of these words carry the idea of permanent abiding or dwelling with God. In other words, how is it that man could ever permanently dwell in the presence of God? And I think this makes David's question all the more weighty, considering the day that he lived in, that if even a glance or a touch of the ark was enough to kill a man, how in the world could one be a permanent guest in the house of God? But beloved, this question also has future implications, implications for you and I. How can we also dwell in the presence of God? Pilgrimage is our lot down here, but permanence awaits us in our heavenly home. And David here is alluding also to a time when God will permanently dwell in the midst of his people forever in the kingdom of heaven. So generally speaking, here's David's question, and I don't want you to miss this. What qualifies us to be there? What is the character that God approves of? What is the character that pleases God for us to be in his presence? Who is fit to be included as a permanent resident forever in the presence of God? And listen, this is the predicament that humanity has faced right from the Garden of Eden, amen? It's the question that needs to be asked in the church. Charles Spurgeon reframes the question this way. This is what he says. Who shall be a citizen of Zion and an inhabitant of the heavenly Jerusalem? The question is raised because it is a question. All men have not this privilege, nay, even among professors, there are aliens from the commonwealth who have no secret intercourse with God. On the grounds of the law, no mere man can dwell with God, for there is not one upon the earth who answers to the just requirements mentioned in the succeeding verses. We shall clearly see that only our spotless Lord Jesus and those who are conformed to his image can ever stand with acceptance before the majesty on high. Now before we move on to really look at this psalm, I want to convey two ways I think that this psalm is often very misunderstood. First, this psalm by many believers is read as nothing more than a list of requirements that leads to a kind of a checklist morality, a works righteousness. Okay, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. In other words, we do these things, we do all these Christian things and it makes us better and nicer so that God will accept us. How many of you have ever had trouble wondering if God really accepts you? Come on, raise your hand. You wonder about that. That can be a problem. Because you see, again, let me remind you that David's question here is not about how someone may be made right with God. It's a question about how someone who is already in a relationship with God experiences fellowship with him more fully and more consistently. And therefore, the question has more to do with assurance of salvation than with attainment of salvation. 
The second way, though, that this psalm is often misunderstood is really on the other end of the scale, that these requirements that we're going to read are completely ignored by those who say this, well, God's unmerited grace to me negates any need to keep God's commandment. I don't have to worry about God's commandments. I'm saved by grace. I'm washed in the blood. I'm good to go. And this, beloved, inevitably leads to an antinomian moral carelessness. In other words, those who have a complete disregard for the law of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to, but to fulfill the law. What Psalm 15 calls for is what we read in 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the goal. Now, this address by David to the Lord implies that it is God, and it is God alone that has the authority to determine who may approach him. There's no man-made rules here, but God does have rules. And listen, beloved, we are governed by God's moral laws. Amen? We are governed by God. We are to be, the Bible says, a holy people. And I am always astounded by professing believers who see no obligation to obey God's laws claiming that because they are under the new covenant, this is no longer necessary. Listen, moralism is wrong, using the Bible to make good people better or nicer people nicer. But so is antinomianism, the idea that grace frees us from obeying any of God's laws. These things are to be avoided, and our sanctification, our need, and our desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, listen, it is not optional. In fact, it's one of the very evidences of genuine Christian faith. So having looked at the crucial question, let's now look at David's careful answer. Now beginning in verse 2, we start to see the characteristics of Christian character and integrity that are to be evidenced by those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will notice that this psalm alternates in triplets of positive and negative descriptions. And as we read these, I want you to think this way, that these are the things that form the bedrock of what is acceptable worship before God. And I want you to notice in verse 2, there are three positive descriptions. Verse 2, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Now, Immediately, we can pull out some practical application before we even get into this. And if there's one thing we need to learn about this text, it's this. We need to put feet to our faith. In other words, those who are acceptable before God practice their faith. And isn't it true that we often judge true spirituality a lot of the time on the intellectual aptitude of fellow believers? I mean, that's where we tend to gravitate. Man, is he sound in biblical theology. Man, he really knows apologetics. He has great discernment. That guy over there, he talks so piously. Look at all the scripture that that person has memorized. Now listen, in and of themselves, these are good and necessary things. My point here is not to degrade the things that I just mentioned. My point in saying that is that David is far more concerned about how a person lives against what a person knows. He shows that acceptable worship before God is evidenced not so much by a talk righteousness, but rather it's evidenced by a works righteousness. And we see this taught throughout the scriptures. 
For example, think of the qualification for deacons and elders that we find in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, Titus 1, 5 through 9. Do you realize that every one of those verses, beloved, alludes to the character qualities that a leader must have which qualifies them for the work of the ministry? It is the character qualities that we see. Nowhere does Paul ask, what are your degrees? Where did you go to school? What are your theological credentials? Listen, these are important things, but they are not the most important things. Paul is more concerned with how one practices his faith. What is the evidence? What does that walk of a Christian look like? And far too often, I think, the way one practices the Christian faith is overshadowed by what he knows about the faith. You know, I'm convinced that Jesus couldn't get a job in a lot of churches today. So, do you have any seminary degrees? Well, not really. Did you ever go to Bible college? No, no. You ever done any preaching? Yeah, I've done some of that. Well, who did you preach to? Seminary students? No, pretty much fishermen and tax collectors. Any other experience? So, where do you live? Well, I kind of move around a lot. Sleeping under the stars. Don't have much of a home. Well, thanks for the resume. We'll get back to you. I can see that happening. Again, I'm not dismissing the importance of being approved and maturing in our understanding of Scripture. Please do not hear me say that. What I'm saying is this, beloved, that our worthiness to dwell with God is primarily seen in how we live out our faith. If you study scripture, you will see overwhelming evidence of God paying attention to this very thing. If you look at, for example, all the Proverbs, look at the Sermon on the Mount, Psalm 24, 1 Peter chapters 3 through 5, the Epistle of James, many others, all of these passages speak about the way that you and I are to live our faith out. And what is the whole purpose of learning scripture and maturing in the faith? So that we can live it out, amen? We don't learn scripture to hold it up here. We learn scripture to mature in Christ so that we can live it out. And David tells us how we're to live out the faith in these verses. So let's get back to the nuts and bolts of verse two. The first thing David says is those who abide with God are people who should walk with integrity. Literally, this refers to those who are without blemish or blameless. In other words, they're sound in their walk with Christ. It refers to having complete devotion to the will of God, a life which translates then into holy conduct. We could say it this way, to have integrity is to have a well-rounded spiritual life, to reflect godliness and attitude and action. Those with integrity are honest, they're true, they're fair, ethical, they walk in moral uprightness, They live a life of consistency and sincerity. There's not deception or pretense. Integrity's overwhelming quality here is really, in the Hebrew, translated to be wholeness. That's how it's translated here. Those who walk in integrity walk in a way that their life demonstrates wholeness. And what does that mean practically? It means that there is no discrepancy between your public life and your private life. You are who you are before the Lord always. In other words, if you have integrity, you have nothing to hide. Integrity, beloved, listen, it's not your reputation. It's not based on the opinions of others. It's not success in what you accomplish. Integrity, in fact, is not something you have. It's literally something you are. And who you are. 
shows up in what you say and what you do. Paul instructed the Philippians in Philippians 1.10. He said, be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. This was a direct call by the Apostle Paul for believers to have integrity. Next, he goes on and says that our lives should be characterized by a works righteousness. And beloved, listen, we, we must get this clear in our minds. We cannot divorce justification from subsequent sanctification. You know, there are Christians who vehemently demand, I am saved by grace and I am not saved by works. And they'll whip out their Bibles and they'll quote Titus 3, 5, right? He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And to that I say, amen, 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 amen. And I would say you're absolutely right. But again, I would remind you that David is not speaking of salvation in our text. He's speaking about those who someday will reign with Christ and dwell with him forever. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying that those who are truly born again, those who have been called to newness of life, prove the reality of their regeneration through the works of righteousness they do. Amen? Let's get a better one than that. Amen? All right, that's better. If you're sleeping, I can wake you up. I have spitballs up here, and I'm good. You know, you can talk all day long about how you're saved by grace through faith. You can claim to be a Christian. You can talk like a Christian, sing like a Christian, hang out with Christians, and have Christian pets. That doesn't mean anything. The real proof that you're a Christian is evidenced through a life of righteous works. Not perfect righteousness, not sinless righteousness, but evidence that the bent of your life is that of a righteous person. None of us is perfect. We understand that. And this is exactly what we see taught in James chapter 2. In verse 14, James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? It's kind of a rhetorical question because it's like, well... That's no faith. But the key, and we often miss this, I think is found in verse 17. Because James in verse 17 goes on to say, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead. And here's the key, being by itself. Did you get that? Faith is dead being by itself. And that's why he goes on in verse 18 to say, but some of you may well say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. Works do not save us. We are saved by the grace of God. But works are the inevitable outflow of a true, genuine conversion of the heart. Not perfect works, not sinless works, not totally righteous works, but the bent of a person's life will be that he is yoked to Christ. I often look at it this way. It's like a motorboat going down a lake. What do you see behind a motorboat that's going down a lake? This is a quiz. Just shout it out. What do you see behind the boat? A wake. You guys. <laughs> ah, you live in Florida. You know fishing. Okay, so you see a wake, right? So think of the motor as genuine salvation and the wake as your subsequent works. The wake doesn't cause the motor. The motor causes the wake, right? If you have a motor going down, unless you're in a no-wake zone, you're going to get a wake, that's the idea that James is trying to get across. 
I love what John Calvin said in his antidote to the Council of Trent. He said, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. And we uphold the same truth when we proclaim this, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but saving faith never stands alone. Beloved, there can be no true justification without evidence of sanctification, evidence of a work's righteousness in the life of a believer. Listen, God's grace is not a cheap grace. There is no such thing as cheap grace. God's grace saved us, and now the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and you can't make the Holy Spirit unemployed. Amen? He's in your life. And he's never unemployed in the hearts and lives of true believers. We do sin. We are not perfect. But the bent of our lives toward the Savior is this, that we are now, as true believers, forever at war against our sin. And you will notice here that David says nothing about ritualistic ceremony. He says nothing about priestly sacrifices, nothing about ritualistic purity, says nothing about external religion whatsoever. And the reason is this, because our works righteousness, it is a moral righteousness, an internal godliness that affects the outside of our lives. He goes on to say that those who dwell with God also speak truth in their hearts. Notice the end of verse 2. In vogue today is the idea that truth is what you make it, that it's irrelevant. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And if you really want a good treatise on this, talk to Pastor Robert Frere because he's got this down. He's nailed this. He's got it down to a science. But let me tell you, those who believe in no absolute truth... Those people are absolutely not telling the truth. God's truth is objective truth, and every truth is grounded in biblical truth found in the Word of God. And that means we hold to what we genuinely believe, okay? We are not people who should be engaged in doublespeak or hypocrisy. We should not be people who use our tongues to destroy the reputation of others. We are people that should not slander. We are people who should avoid flattery and gossip. It's been well said that flattery is saying to a man's face what you would never say behind his back, and gossip is saying behind a man's back what you would never say to his face. True words. So after these positive couplets, notice that David goes on in verse 3 to present three negative couplets, and he says in verse 3 that those who are going to be fit to please God, to dwell in his presence. He is not one who slanders with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, I don't know about you, but I get nervous when I think about sins regarding the tongue. Anybody in that boat? I hear murmuring. In fact, in Philippians 2.14, Paul says this, do all things without grumbling and disputing. How many of you have that down pat? How many of you grumbled this morning? How many of you are grumbling right now? Shame on you. And then we think of James chapter 3, where the whole chapter is devoted to the misuse of the tongue. And we're told by James there that the tongue can set a forest on fire. The tongue has the ability to defile the body. It is set on fire by hell itself. You know, no weapon on earth has done more damage to people than the tongue. 
Years ago, I preached a message through James 3 and I entitled the message, The Weapon Behind Our Teeth. Because that's what the tongue is. So we should speak fairly, kindly, and truthfully to people, even when we have hard things to say. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. One of the things the Lord hates, we read in Proverbs 6, 17, is a lying tongue. And I would say, beloved, that controlling the tongue is the most difficult body part to rein in. Amen? So what is David saying? He's saying, pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth. Going on in verse 3, he says that those in God's presence are not to do evil to their neighbor. You'll remember that when one of the scribes of Israel asked Jesus, what commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered this way. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second half is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, there is no other commandment greater than these. So what is David alluding to here? That as believers, we shouldn't do evil to our neighbors. In other words, we shouldn't be doing things that would harm them or hinder them in a way. Especially a way that you would never wish upon yourself. You know, I was recently tested in this area. I live in a cul-de-sac. And I backed out of the driveway in my truck and I was in the cul-de-sac and I was just about ready to put it in drive and I felt this bam in the back of my truck. You know that sick feeling? My new neighbor lady backed out of her driveway without looking and backed right into my truck. Now let me tell you what my flesh was thinking. Wanted to get out of my truck and then I realized I had just witnessed to her and I'm like, oh, there's this testimony thing, you know. Like, you know, and I was really struggling with it, and I got out and I said, Oh, it's okay. You know, I'm like, Oh, not a problem. You know, I was trying to be holding it back. I said, Oh, it's not your fault, nor did she say it was her fault. And then I thought, Well, you know, her salvation perhaps down the road is more important than my dented truck. Although, no, I just know although. <laughs> You know, when we have to put feet to our faith at times, it's a challenge, amen? It's a challenge to live the way we should. Along with this, notice that David says we shouldn't take up a reproach against a friend. And this would be that we shouldn't join in discrediting a person in the eyes of others or shaming a person or embarrassing them or taunting them in any way. I think it's interesting that the word for friend here is the same Hebrew word that we get the word neighbor from. And a neighbor, beloved, is anyone other than you. Anyone other than yourself. In verse 4, David goes back again to three positive couplets. Notice what he says. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. He's saying that those who are in God's presence will despise the reprobate. Now let's think about this. The idea here is God notices what we value and who we esteem. 
Rather than envying the life of a reprobate, that is one who is polluted or dirty or morally depraved, or desiring fellowship with those who literally hate God, this qualification describes someone who holds a reprobate lifestyle in contempt. In other words, David is saying there is no envy, there is no admiration of those living in debauchery such as Hollywood celebrities or popular entertainers or famous athletes. You know, there are many Christians who worship at the altar of people who are, are very wicked in these areas. Now, this in no way implies that we hate the person. Let's get that straight. In fact, in Matthew 5.44, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Rather, what we're saying here is that we should refuse to praise them in the kind of lifestyle that they live. It is so damaging when we hold up people who are in debauchery or reprobate people as role models, to hold them up and to idolize them. And for parents here who have kids, let me tell you something, that will come back to haunt you. Because your children watch who you esteem, who you value. Make sure that they understand where you are placing your esteem and where you're placing your value. Because having the wrong role models is worse than having no role models at all. Who do you idolize? Who gets the lion's share of your attention? What kind of people do your children see you get excited about? Notice he says, conversely, the righteous before God will honor those who fear the Lord. There's the key. Yesterday I was watching, I was on YouTube and I came across R.C. Sproul's eulogy at St. Andrews. And I happened to catch John MacArthur in his speech and it literally brought tears to my eyes. And I thought, these are the godly men of our day. These are the men who will go down in history as men worth emulating, as men worth esteeming. They're not perfect I traveled with R.C., and he's a pirate fan, so I know he wasn't perfect. (laughs) But listen, those who fear the Lord should be our greatest role models. Fathers who provide for their families and show spiritual leadership in the home. Mothers who are faithful to their husbands and caring for and rearing children. People who willingly sacrifice for others. Those are the kind of role models we should have. And how about this for a role model as He says in the end of verse 4, one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, this quality, beloved, of the Christian life puts others ahead of ourselves. We esteem others higher than ourselves, Philippians 2, 3. And I love this, that the one who is worthy of access to God swears to his own hurt. Do you understand what that means? That if we promise something, if we obligate ourselves to someone or something, then we follow through even if it might hurt us or be inconvenient or cost us something or cause a radical change in our plans. We are people of our word. We keep our commitments even when we're tempted to abandon them. We have integrity, we're trustworthy, we give our word, we keep our word. And how often do we miss the mark here? A dad promises to spend time with his daughter, but then reverses course when a a business opportunity arises. 
A church member agrees to help in a ministry until a more appealing recreational activity may present itself. Or one who holds biblical convictions one minute and then abandons them when it goes against the culture or when he gets a little pushback. You know, Jesus here is our greatest example. He came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you realize that Jesus could have bailed out? Amen? He could have bailed out and not discredited his perfect righteousness and holiness in one way. He could have called 10,000 angels. He didn't even have to come at all. But he did. And he said to the Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus stayed the course. He suffered horrific pain and suffering. He died so that he could rise again, defeat death, and offer us eternal life. That's what we're to emulate. We're called to different levels of sacrifice and service. And even if it's to our own hurt, we have to be men and women of integrity, people who keep our word. And that brings us to verse 5, where we see a double negative. Those who seek to dwell in the house of the Lord, notice, do not put out their money at interest, nor do they take bribes against the innocent. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, the Mosaic law strictly prohibited charging fellow Israelites interest on loans, especially for those who were in financial difficulty. And of course, we understand this because a loan just puts a poor person further in debt and it makes it all the harder for them to get out of debt. But the principle for us, the overriding principle in this, beloved, is this, that it prevents us from taking advantage of individuals' dire circumstances. We should never take advantage of the misfortune of others. Years ago, I remember seeing a woman, I think it was at a theme park or someplace, trip and fall, and money fell out of her purse, and others grabbed it up and ran away. That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of world that we live in. We're not to do that. We're not to take advantage of others. We're to help others. Nor are we to take a bribe against the innocent. That is, use money or to use those in authority to influence what should otherwise be an unbiased ruling. Particularly in condemning someone who has done no wrong. You know, Jesus had six trials. Three before the Romans, three before the Israelites, and was condemned unjustly in every one. God's people should love justice and mercy, and they should treat people equitably and defend the rights of those who otherwise might be unjustly oppressed. So there you have it. Now let me ask the crucial question of you personally. How does your life match up to all these aforementioned precepts? Raise your hand if you got them all down pat. Make no mistake about this either. This is not a multiple choice exam in which you select one option out of many. Well, 2B I've got down pretty good here. Not that. It's not like horseshoes or hand grenades where close is good enough. The reality is this. Open your ears. If you have failed to personally and perfectly and perpetually meet these standards, your life is not worthy to stand before God on his holy hill. Do you get that? 
you are not qualified to stand in the presence of a holy God. You see, this psalm is not a description about how righteous we are or how righteous we can be. It's about how righteous we must be if we are to stand in fellowship with God. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us will admit that none of us have achieved these standards. Not a one. None of us on our own merits could ever stand alive before a holy God. Paul Washer minces no words when he says this, unless a person is an imbecile or his conscience has been seared beyond use, he must recognize that he does not possess the necessary qualifications to stand approved before the judge of all the earth. But David, nor this psalm, leaves us here without hope. Because in addition to asking this crucial question and giving us these careful answers, David now leaves us with a very comforting promise at the end of verse 5 when he says, He who does these things will never be shaken. Now you may be thinking, but you just said would none of us do this. I did say that. There is only one man who has done all these things, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was tempted in all things, yet as Hebrews 4.15 states, he was without sin. You see, this psalm is really a resume about his life, not ours. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All who come to him in repentance for the forgiveness of sin and in faith confess him as Lord and Savior are now treated as if they lived a Psalm 15 life. Amen? Don't think for a moment that this psalm is a means to attain or maintain fellowship with God. Don't fall for the trap of moralism. It's instead the perfect standard of righteousness earned by the Lord Jesus Christ through his act of obedience credited to all who believe. Trying harder to meet the qualifications of Psalm 15 is not how you respond to the first verse. Looking to Jesus in humble faith to change you in a walk of righteousness is how we should respond. You see, the the comforting promise here is that your citizenship in heaven is justified because of the perfect righteousness of Christ which was imputed to you through faith alone. So what do we need to learn here? Should Christians pursue Psalm 15's list of godly attributes? Absolutely. But not as a means of standing blameless before God because those who have trusted in Christ have permanent peace with God. Instead, listen beloved, our pursuit of righteousness should be a way of thanking the Lord for his perfect righteousness credited to us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Because of him, we will never be shaken or moved. You see, this psalm is a call to righteousness, but it's a call to Christ, who is our righteousness, who may abide and dwell in the presence of God forever, Only those who through the righteousness of Christ alone are welcomed by the Father. And that is the answer to this crucial question. If you are sitting here today and you have not put faith in Jesus Christ, if you are depending on anything other than Christ to save you, to justify you before a holy God, you will never 
be worthy enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, we put out a plea every week that if you do not know Christ as personal Savior, if you have not put faith in Him, you are on a road to eternal separation and damnation forever. So my plea to anyone here today who has never put faith in Christ, I'm going to be standing right up here. I want you to run up here. Give us the opportunity to tell you how you can go from darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. There is no other religion. There is no other path to take. I am sure we have unbelievers here. And this is not a condemnation. This is a call of mercy. Don't put it off. You may not make it home this afternoon. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to come up here. And it would be our privilege to be able to talk with you. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your love. Lord, you have made the supreme sacrifice in redeeming us from eternal damnation and separation from you. Lord, you have justified us through the imputed righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you invite us to live a life of hope and joy and freedom. And your desire, Lord, for us now is to live a life of progressive sanctification. And so I pray, Lord, that you might help us not to get so consumed with serving ourselves or so consumed with fleshly pursuits, so casual about our Christian lives that we get apathetic or irreverent towards you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness and that, Lord, our lives would be a living reflection of the one who died to grant us eternal life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things, Lord, we ask in his name. Amen.